Race matters. 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 I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal lands. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands long after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge, stories and song, and we are privileged to be a part of that storytelling today and every day at FBI Radio. We pay our respects to Gadigal elders past and present. We're broadcasting from Redfern right now, the birthplace of black theatre in this country and a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. We honour this in all the work we do and carry this into our conversation today. You're listening to Race Matters. This is a show that explores the values and complexities of race, culture and identity. My name is Tuba Anwar. And my name is Alicia Zhao. Today we'll be doing a deep dive into the work of Stephanie New and unearthing the hidden gems of history on Christmas Island. You might know Christmas Island as a site for the brutal incarceration of refugees and asylum seekers into its detention centres. As an external territory of so-called Australia, This small island with a population of nearly 2,000 people has come to represent the draconian policing of national borders, racial violence and xenophobia. However, there is a deeper, more radical history that has left uncharted in public consciousness. Today we're going to be delving into this with Stephanie, but it's important to note that the island has also been a site of struggles for trade union workers a site of apartheid system and the exploitation of workers. Home to indentured labourers from China, Malaysia and Singapore, Christmas Island has been a contested site of exploitation, but also an exemplar of the power of collective resistance. They fought successfully for their rights to equal wages and citizenship. Their legacy continues on through generations and we'll be exploring this more today with Stephanie New, a poet and a Fulbright scholar from the United States. She is the author of the poetry chapbook, She Has Dreamt Again, of Water, and the forthcoming chapbook, Survived By, which explores endangered and extinct species on Christmas Island through poetic maps and scientific research. More broadly, Stephanie's work is dedicated to unearthing previously untold histories through visualised mappings. Her past research ranges from understanding the spatial organisation of the Black Panther Party's power to the geographical mapping of Chinese railroad workers in North America during the 1860s. Today we're going to be delving into her current research project, The Living Museum of Christmas Island, weaving together the poetry, stories and histories of the local community.
Stephanie, it's an absolute pleasure to have you in the studio. Thank you for sharing your time and energy with us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Alicia and Toombs. This is, I feel like that's such a beautifully researched introduction and I'm really honored to be here. So thank you for looking into my work so deeply and for having me. Absolute pleasure. I I wanted to start by asking you about the beginnings of your journey to Christmas Islands because it's a place that you've continually returned to throughout your work and I was wondering what sparked your interest to undertake research there. Everyone on the island was asking me when I first arrived. They were like, do you have family here? How did you hear about us? Like most Americans don't even know we exist. Um, it started with a grant called the Beagle 2, which was the same name of the ship that Darwin sailed on when he was in his 20s. And the grant's purpose was to fund a journey of intellectual discovery. Um, and it was that broad. And so as an undergraduate student, um, this is a grant uh, at my alma mater at Stanford, I was like, I need to apply for this. It's like a grant like nothing else in the world. Like I should just go somewhere. I would never go otherwise. And I had heard a bit about the crab migration. Um, and when I looked more into Christmas Island as a place, I learned a little bit about its history from a news article that was like Christmas Island's brutal past, um, indentured Chinese labor. Mm -hmm. And at the time I was working on some research and digital visualizations about the transcontinental railroad and um, Chinese labor and its role in sort of creating that railroad for America. So I figured there was enough of a connection there for me to maybe learn a bit about the history. Um, but really, I just I was just w wanting to go on an adventure, I guess, and sort of found myself on the island. Um, and after that initial trip, I really fell in love with the place and felt like there was more work to be done there. There was more history to be written down, um, and I wanted to return. So I went back a second time. That's such an <laughs> important insight. Um, after reading about and learning about your work, I had the same um, sentiment. Um, more for for us growing up here in um, so-called Australia, we kind of place Christmas within yeah that contemporary political context of only hearing about Christmas Island as part of a really cruel offshore refugee policy. Um, and you you have a piece called Shorebound, which explores the migration of the red crabs in contradiction to the heavily policed migration of refugees. I was wondering if you could share a bit more about that that piece. The thing that made me think about comparing the crab migration to um, immigration policy and the ironies there was the, the crab bridge, which is this sort of monumental, really tall bridge that crosses a road it's you've probably maybe seen it in the TikTok where it's like almost vertical and the crabs are climbing up it and it's like such an elaborate piece of infrastructure that supports the movement of this of this species the red crab um, and at the same time like the only other thing I could find about the island was it being a site of of stillness of like people who want to be in movement people who want to be um, coming to a new place and not being permitted that and so I wanted to know how islanders thought about this their their home as a site of both movement and facilitating movement of one kind and really preventing movement of another kind and the ironies of who gets to move, who gets to be, who gets to belong and um, belong to the island and who uh, is seen as outsider and sort of forbidden from, from that movement that is important to survival. That leads really nicely onto the next question. I wanted to ask, in what ways does Christmas Island act as a microcosm of insights into being an outsider? Oh, into being an outsider. Mm. 
It's an interesting site for defining belonging, right? Because islands often have, just from a biological perspective, the notion of endemism, like an endemic species that only exists on the island. The red crab is one. Um, there's there's many crab populations that only exist there, seabirds, things like that. And so from like a conservation perspective, you can see why it's important to protect those species because if they cease to exist on the island, they cease to exist anywhere. Mm. Um, but the island's isolation, that that's sort of a result of like the island's geographic isolation. Um, I think when people visit the island, something that surprises them is that it doesn't really feel like so-called Australia. A lot of the food is Malay and Chinese. Um, the, the geography and even the architecture is like very Singaporean. And that reflects the fact that the island is geographically much closer to Indonesia and to Singapore and Southeast Asia than to Australian shores. Um, so, yeah, the island wasn't always Australian. It only was in 1958. For a while, it was administered by Singapore. So people followed Singaporean road laws. Um, in schools, they were given these like these flavored milks that all a lot of Singaporean children remember having growing up. Um, yeah, and the unit I lived in was like the same architecture style as the Singaporean uh, HDR, like high density um, housing development. Um, so yeah, it, while it's an interesting place because while people vote and like follow WA laws, people go to schools that are under the same regulations as Western Australia, the culture and like the, the geography and history feel like there's a disconnect with what Australia is and where mm. where the people who live on the island have come from. Through all these experiences that you had with the local community um, living on Christmas Islands, how has the legacy of like unionizing and that really rich history of struggle shaped their like collective consciousness? The union is often described by, by select islanders as the mother, like the mother of the present day mining company. Um, so Christmas Island, it's pretty funny. The island wouldn't exist without phosphate mining. Like it wasn't really inhabited by humans as far as we know, except to mine phosphate in like 1899. Um, and so for a long time that was, it was mined under an indentured labor system. Um, and into the 60s and 70s when the island became Australian, it was basically racial apartheid, as you mentioned in your intro, on the island. Separate pools, separate cinemas, um, public transit, different systems for Asian and for non-Asian residents of the island. Um, and the thing that changed all of that was the formation of the union. So in 1974, there was a sort of beloved member of the Chinese community in particular who was told he had to leave, pack up like his whole family of, of four or five, I think it was, and leave within three days because of a sort of false claim about something to do with gambling. Um, and I think people were so outraged that he was being treated unjustly that they were like, don't leave, we'll strike. We just won't work the next day. So this happened at 3 p.m. And then by 7 a.m. the next day, like a thousand people from the island were on the lawn in front of the administration building. There's these amazing photographs of people holding signs that say, this is a personal accusation. There's signs in Chinese that say, um, uh, I think it's like, it basically says unity is strength. And yeah, it, it was just like a huge show of solidarity. And that sparked the conversation, should we unionize? The, the way people talk about the union in the 70s is, it, it's like, of course I joined it. It's what you do by default. You had to join the union. Um, and 
there's an open air cinema in the Chinese neighborhood called Punsan, and they would just have these these sort of like loud rallies, and people have a loudspeaker and just be like getting everyone ready. <laughs> um, yeah, and the union was very powerful in the day. Like if if they wanted to stop work, they would just stop work. Nothing would run. Like the planes wouldn't run, the ships wouldn't get unloaded, um, and so in that way, they gained things like wage parity with the Australian mainland. Better housing conditions for Asian um, and, and non-Asian residents, citizenship rights, which before people didn't have, like they could they could be forced to leave the island at any time, um, and so yeah, that the union really played a huge role in in raising sort of working standards and living standards on the island to the same parity of that on the Australian mainland. We have so much to learn from fighting for wage parity. Still, it is it is so yeah, it is so inspiring to hear about. Yeah, the radical history of unions across borders and it, you know, being able to fight um, fight racism, cut through that division. Yeah, totally. The, the funny thing is doing research on the island is reading a lot of books by people who love the island. And that's about it. It's There's very little by like scholars and PhD students mm-hmm. or academics. It's mm-hmm. like mostly self-published books that were like personal projects of love. Um, mm-hmm. So the Union of Christmas Island Workers, um, Taiku Sang is the story of Gordon Bennett, who was like the really charismatic uh, general secretary of the union and leader. Mm-hmm. And that people say it's sort of like both a, it's sort of a love story. It's sort of a like historical book. Um, there's they're like there's parts of it that you don't know if it's true or not, but that's like a source of really blow by blow what happened. Um, so all of these histories are just told and written down by the people who lived on the island and thought it was incredible and chose to write it. But yeah, largely it's not really documented in, Mm. I think, official stories about unionism or about Australia. Mm. Um, And I think that was something that I found very surprising, as I think you all do now. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really also interesting because, yeah, coming like fast forward to now in the current political context of always really it's been so drilled into people living here that there's fortress australia and it's so impenetrable and the australian government has all these puppet regimes set up across the pacific and all of that and that is it unshakable is it but hearing these stories it kind of speaks to the way that like you know there was so much indentured labor brought yeah brought here onto this continent and to see that there is it didn't it didn't just go on without resistance and seeing that, you know, I can imagine like, it's not like there's these white workers who invent unionizing. It is <laughs> the it is the solidarity and the, the, the workers from, you know, China and Indonesia and Malaysia, like colluding to say we, yeah, have that common enemy, but that's just, yeah, that's truly so, mm. it's so inspiring to, yeah place it within that historical context. Mm-hmm. And one thing I think was important in that moment was um, citizenship and the rights to to belonging to Australia, as, as we discussed earlier, to give people the sort of grounds on which to argue. Um, and the I think the Racial Discrimination Act of 75 was a helpful like legal base for this. And so it was important that that political moment was happening in the 70s. I think if it wasn't, it would be harder for the union to get its footing. Um, I think at the time it was a favorable government as well. So things had to be a little bit in the favor of unionizing for this to even uh, sort of begin. Um, but for a long time, Islanders were not uh, citizens or even permanent residents of 
Australia. And there was something called NTR, which meant never to return, which could be stamped on their passport at any time. And so you, you would never want to like speak up to your boss if you were a Chinese worker in the mine because you might just be told to leave and never return. Mm. Um, and so when the union won the ability for people to apply for permanent residency and later mm. citizenship, that was a huge win for people to feel like their, their home couldn't be taken away from them. Yeah, I definitely see that whole project of the resettlement scheme as always being another arm of Australia's migration policy, being able to say borders exist, but for who? And it's never, yeah. it's not, it's not for everyone. If with enough money and resources, borders don't even matter. But for these working, for these working families, for these migrant families, and at that point, you know, second gen migrant, that is their local, that's their home, and. Yeah, to have that so heavily controlled is so so very typical of this government. Um, There's a special irony that Christmas Island is a really amazing nesting site for endangered seabirds, in particular the Abbott's booby, which now only nests on the island. It used to nest in the Seychelles as well. Um, so it's like it's such an important place for them to reproduce and for them to raise their young. And at the same time, like for people, <laughs> again, the sort of, I guess, cross-species comparison it's a place where people are specifically forbidden from having children when it when it really means something for them to do it there. There's an ongoing question that I have and that I think is something I would like to write about more is the um, something called a resettlement scheme that started in the 70s and continued through the 80s. Um, it was a government policy that was race-specific. It was resettling Asian residents of the island to the Australian mainland. It was meant to be progressive, like happening over a long period of time. Um, and the purpose in, in the document says because of the mine's viability, like the mine wouldn't be economically viable for, you know, after 10 years. And so let's slowly relocate Asian residents for some reason. It wasn't about citizenship because many of them were citizens um, back to the mainland. Um, later, the union did an independent report on the viability of the mine and found that it had at least 30 years left. So that sort of reason for the resettlement turned out not to be valid. The mine is still operating today, so it mm. is it is still very much viable. So there's this question of then why was it so important to resettle just the Asian people on Christmas Island away from their home if it wasn't because the mine wasn't viable? When the island became Australian in 58, people were still being born on the island, so over 500 children received Australian citizenship by birth. They're like Christmas Islanders. They were born on the hospital. And in 98, that right stopped. Mothers ha began to be required to go to Perth to have their child. Um, and I think reportedly it was because of health conditions in the hospital, even though islanders often say, well, we did it for, for 40 years, like there were no problems. What changed? Like it's not like conditions got worse. So now today, um, if you want to have a child on Christmas Island, you have to go to Perth. And this is, this is expensive. It can be traumatic. Sometimes the father can't or the parent can't take leave to go be there when their child is born. Um, and there was a medical study showing that this actually just decreased the number of births. Like sometimes it just makes people not want to have kids when they otherwise would. Um, so that's, I feel like that's another form of policy sort of trying to take the right to a place away from people. They would cover the cost of the mother's, uh, the mother's flight. Um, and then a few years later, they began to co cover the cost for a parent, like a second parent. Before that, that second parent would have to pay for their own flight. Um, there's other things like um, the father, uh, like for many islanders who are Chinese, mothers will do something called zuo yue, where you don't leave the house at all. You don't like shower or anything for a month after the child is born. 
but under this policy, mothers are required to go on the next flight after their hospital discharge back to Perth, so they can't complete this ritual. Um, so there's just a lot of like cultural, financial reasons that make it much more stressful to have a child. We are here with Stephanie New, who is a poet, interdisciplinary scholar. She's currently undertaking research on Christmas islands in collaboration with the local community through poetry and archiving the histories of immigration and labour unionising. We've just been chatting about the living history on Christmas Island and how these histories have been interwoven and mapped out throughout the memories and lived experiences of the community there. So bringing us into your current research project, The Living Museum of Christmas Island, the title really alludes to this idea about the aliveness of history, and this is antithetical to conventional understandings of history as static or bound in the written text. I want to turn now to a series of mapping events you held with the local community called Talking Maps. Could you elaborate on the process of creating and archiving um, people's stories there? Yeah, totally. Um, and that's a that's a really keen observation with the name that the whole idea behind the project is that archives and history aren't set in stone and the people who live them should be the ones writing them um, and that that writing of the history often happens as a dialogue between the past and the present. And yeah, Talking Maps was... Um, it was a way to try to map key historic sites of the island, starting with the George Pham Center, which was the island's um, secondary school. At one point, it was called the Asian School, and it was also sort of the local government office. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Um, yeah, and so rather than creating geographic, I think I wanted to create maps because so much of the island is history is spatial. People will walk past a building or even a specific hallway, and that will trigger a memory of oh yeah, this is where we used to have blue light parties like after the teachers left, which is where they would have blue disco lights in like what was the recreational ping pong room or something um, of, the, of their secondary school. So um, yeah, and the fact that so much of the island's historic structures are unchanged, like the George Fame Center looks the same way it does when it was built in the 50s. Uh, so I wanted people to create something between like a cognitive or associative map where you're not really pl pl plotting lat longe, but instead... Um, generally arranging emotions in space to something much more specific. So in the activity, people learned a little bit about the history of the center if they weren't students there. And for people who did have memories associated with the center, um, they took a sort of three-dimensional sketch of the building and then plotted emotions and memories with like colored cellophane uh, and drew, um, they sort of added things to the map to give it color and depth. There were prompts like, um, if you were to give your best friend a tour of this building, what would you point out to them? And we would put those down as landmarks, for example. Uh, so it was meant to be a bit more scrappy, a bit more informal. And yeah, it was interesting to see um, hot spots of emotion, for example, like the building of the, of the George Fram Center included the incline, which is this former part of the railway that would transport phosphate behind the building and the road in front. And those were really hot spots of emotion, even though they weren't the building itself. People had so many good memories driving down that road, seeing golden bosons, which is an endemic species, fly overhead. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a friend from the national parks told me that bosons do nest in that cliff and they fly a lot at midday. So when people are on their lunch break, they often see that bird. 
Um, and it seems like because the building is positioned sort of at the base of the mountain that the island is, it made a lot of people think about uh, both the ocean and the hill behind them and be very aware of their geographic positioning in space. Um, and then the incline, it's the only way to really quickly get from the top of the island to the bottom if it's like a long night out and you don't want to drive or something. So a lot of people had memories there of like slippery after rain or like walking back after a night on the pub. Um, someone who was a student there was like, yeah, we would like sneak Singaporean cigarettes here when I was 14 years old. <laughs> um, yeah, so it was, yeah, it was, I, I feel like this this method, it's a lot of fun and it's not necessarily the best way to collect, you know, like a perfect timeline of history, but I think when you do know the history of a place in rough strokes, it helps fill in the gaps of what did people feel? What did they think? Um, what was it like in their minds? And I feel like that's an important part of, of collecting these memories. I feel like you're tapping into this, yeah, this idea that of um, history as non-linear, as something that is felt deeply and embodied within the community and the people who lived it themselves. Um, and I remember seeing one of the the maps that someone drew actually yeah and um how like vivid the colors were and how sort of like collage mm -hmm. um that it looked and I was I was very curious about like how you yeah went about that process yeah definitely I think you might have seen one with like a Homer Simpson yeah. illustration <laughs> on it it was like Nasi Lamak yum only 10 cents <laughs> which it was in the 70s um, yeah, the school food apparently was amazing. <laughs> it was like nasi lemak, mie goreng. Yeah, the visuals of it, I think I wanted it to be playful. This, um, the colors you saw were actually cellophane, so just part of it was also what was available. Like the island doesn't have, it just has one little pharmacy. Mm -hmm. But the cellophane allowed for overlapping. Like I assumed that people would have both maybe positive and negative emotions, um, high valence, like intense emotions and low-key emotions in the same place. So I wanted something clear where you could let there be multiple layers and multiple truths existing at the same time. Mm. Um, a similar project that I did that isn't uh, isn't on my website yet, so you might not have read anything about it, is called Dear Christmas Island, and it was sort of the culmination of my time there. Um, and similar to talking maps, I wanted people to be in dialogue with the past. So I curated photographs of the 70s and 80s on Christmas Island and displayed them in these big A3 envelopes and the photos were sort of peeking out of these windows and asked questions on the envelopes and had people write their responses. Um, and those are similarly very fun. It's almost like a scrapbook, like, that's my mom, <laughs> or, um, oh, I remember this day, like, I wish the Sate Club still existed. So it's very emotional, people responding directly to the photos, but in these like bright colored Sharpies, so it feels very scrapbooky. That's really beautiful. I want to turn now to another project that you held um, with some students on Christmas Island District High School. Um, and in order to spark their creative process, you began with the prompt, how can a poem be a tool for imagining a better future? And I wanted to ask what kinds of new insights did this experience bring about for you? Yeah, thanks for asking that. I think I came in with a very ambitious desire to um, have students sort of like use their, their imagination and their radical creativity to help us paint a picture of the island's future, which is very much 
um, in flux. The island's primary industry is still phosphate, and that operates on a land lease, um, which expires in 2034. So there's a lot of questions about what's next, if the island needs to completely shift its economy, if the lease will be renewed, which many people think it won't. So this is a question for the whole island, not just for students. But I felt like poems are often really great ways to sort of create visions for the future that don't have to be so tied to reality, but can give us something to dream towards or to think towards. Um, I think that's a really tall ask for 15-year-old students. Um, but what I found was their writing, I think their writing, it wasn't the sort of perfect, hopeful, cheery vision of the future that I maybe thought that youth writing would be. It was very aware of the things that threaten our world. It was very aware of climate change, very aware of the precarity of the island. Um, and I found that the hope and the sort of future thinking that was in these students' poems, um, it wasn't like, oh yes, the policy we must enact is this, you know, island needs to shift its economy this way. But it was it was really in the intimacy of interpersonal relationships. Um, there was a poem called Nanex Cooking that talks about how much uh, the student just wrote, I wrote this poem because I love my grandma's cooking. Um, or, or even like a political awareness of their families, the role of labor in shaping their family. There was one called Sunday, and it was just all of these relaxing activities, bush bashing, walking along the beach, collecting shells. And the last line is a typical Sunday when dad isn't at work. So all of these things only enabled, you know, by the absence of, of labor. Um, so, yeah, I think, I don't know if the, the poems necessarily answer that question, right? Like, how can a poem create a better future for Christmas Island specifically? But I think the students' range of responses and the way they turn toward interpersonal relationship rather than answering this question that's like both a policy question, an environmental question, an existential question, that surprised me and I'm really like exhilarated with the way it surprised me. I remember also from reading it all together in one sitting as a collection, I really, it was this whole feeling of like, all these kids are friends and they're all just like, there's this community and you can, I don't know, maybe I felt like I could see the yeah I could see them overlap and like yeah oh that's really sweet I'm that they are <laughs> I'm glad that that came through actually in their voices I was I re had this idea of like a big launch event for the zine and everyone would come up and read it'd be really almost like a professional reading but nobody wanted to read I think the students were really shy and oh. one student was really on the on the cusp I could tell and she was like I'll do it if Ikram does it. And Ikram was like, I'll do it if Maya does it. So at some point I was trying to convince this triangle of besties to all read. In the end they didn't, but it was still fun. tuned in you're listening to race matters my name is alicia here with tubes we've been talking in depth with stephanie new about her expansive research on christmas island with the local community spanning across poetry historical legacies of labor unions and community mapping events and archiving of memories stephanie thank you so much for joining us and chatting through your work we're going to finish now with a poetry reading by you. Um, 
Stephanie, what would you like to share with us? I think I'm going to read a poem called Vision for America, which is one I wrote um, after my first visit to the island in 2018. And we talked a bit about the crabs. It it starts there with the crab migration. Uh, but I really loved what you said about borders. Like, you know, many countries, including America and Australia, like the idea of borders, but for who? And so I think that made me think about this poem. Vision for America. When I lived on the island, the crabs began moving the day after the first heavy rain. Waking in the jungle, they headed toward the sea. Watching them is watching death, so much of it, so certain. The trucks that must pass despite the signs, the slush of inevitable crush, blushing flame of forest orange. I wonder how in the face of massacre, they remember the way to water. A park ranger taught me they read the pull of gravity on rain, follow downhole trickles at an angle we cannot see. The smell of moving water, open water, salt, is just strong enough to prompt this river of clicking bodies. Here, rain means stop driving, means watch the beautiful creatures move. On the island, the roads close where crabs cross, and still there is death, the warm red stench. I like to imagine a place where the land is split only by how the rain falls, where survival includes every living thing and we know what to obey. Weather, gravity, the sense the living make. That is all for Race Matters this week. I'm Alicia Zhao. Thank you again, Stephanie, for joining us today. Her forthcoming collection, Survived By, will be available for pre-order with host publications starting in January. If you want to learn more about her work, we will leave the details in our show notes. And I'm Tubes. Thank you for tuning in. You can listen back to episodes of Race Matters at fbiradio.com slash race matters. Race matters. Race matters. Race matters.